outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 356. And today on the show, I'm joined by my friend and DIY bow hunting extraordinaire, Andy May, to answer a whole bunch of your deer hunting questions. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. Today, we have got a great, I think, a great episode in store for you because uh, two things. Number one, we're going to be tackling listener questions. And these are always some of my favorite episodes because we get to discuss exactly what you, the listener, want to discuss. Specific questions, challenges, issues that you're dealing with. So in my mind, that's always a good thing. Number two, I think this is going to be a really good one because my good buddy and one of the best deer hunters I know Mr. Andy May is joining me to help us do that. So, Andy, thanks for making the time to do this. Hey, no problem, man. This is this is fun. I haven't done one like this, so uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, and I feel like you've been on. I guess I guess I'm not 100 percent sure on this. I'm I'm, may, I'm assuming that you've been on extended leave because schools and everything have just been shut down. So, have you had to do any e work, like work from home stuff, or are you are you out completely? Nope, we've uh, we've actually been working remotely uh, with our our families. I work with uh, children with special needs, so we've been doing um, contacting all of our families and basically seeing how they want the therapy provided. Um, some families want you know like video therapy. Some uh, families were just emailing activities that they can do at home that we typically would do during therapy. Um, some families are choosing not to participate at all. 
Um, so I have a, you know, a caseload of uh, 55 students or so, um, that I have to keep in touch with weekly, but not everybody is participating. So, um, and then, uh, quite a few zoom meetings and stuff. So it's, it's definitely been a reduced workload, but we're definitely still working. And then I have a second job. Um, that one has all been continued, uh, has continued as well all through just telehealth. Okay. So like phone, phone monitoring and stuff. That's cool. I was gonna, I was gonna say, um, if you had just been able to spend the last two months doing nothing but scouting, I would just be very jealous and, and know that you are, you already out hunt us most years, but if you had two full months off with nothing but scouting to do, uh, then we'd all be in real trouble. And Andy may would just be tearing it up. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> glad they're still making you do a little work, Andy. <laughs> yeah, they are. I have, it, it's been, I mean, I'm ready. Obviously, uh, this has been a, a, a bad situation for a lot of people, but, uh, been trying to make the most of it and, being outside and been doing, you know, a lot of turkey hunting, a lot of deer scouting and uh, a lot of fishing, which is something that something I really love to do. But over the past, you know, 10, 15 years has kind of taken a back seat to to my hunting and family time. So I don't get out as much, but I've been out quite a bit fishing. And so it's it's been it's been nice. That's cool. Hitting the yeah. uh, walleye. Yeah, walleye. Um, we've hit, I hit the Detroit River a few times. We got you know, a couple limits down there. Um, and then I was up North, um, this past weekend and did some bass fishing. We caught over 80 bass over the weekend nice. and, uh, some pike and it was just, it was a good time. Were they the bass off the beds already or still spawning? They were actually, some were on the beds, depending on the lake, the shallower lakes, they were on the beds. Um, and then, um, the, the, the cooler water lakes, so they were kind of like pre-spawn. So they were like really, really aggressive in the shallows feeding. Mm, that is fun. Yeah. It was cool. Yeah. The smallies were just tearing it up. So, oh man, I'm itching to just get out and do any of that kind of stuff. I've been, uh, doing some turkey hunting, a bunch of habitat work over the back 40. That's, that's kind of been consuming my life this spring, but, uh, I'm about to head out west to Idaho tomorrow. When we record this, it'll be tomorrow. Uh, when this actually airs, I'll be out there. But I'm um, itching to get out there and do some fly fishing. So that's uh, that's my next thing I'm looking forward to. But but right now, Andy, we got to stay focused. We got to talk deer because kind of crazy. But we're already three months out from opening day for a lot of those early season states. So uh, it's game time here before we know it. And I actually talked last night uh with a mutual friend of ours acquaintance friend joe rentmeister and coming out of that conversation i just had like a new like my excitement level got turned up a couple notches my brain is shifting more and more to getting pumped for the summer velvet time period and all that stuff so it's a good time for us to be talking because i'm i'm getting amped um yeah joe is something else isn't he yeah he's uh, he's good he uh I'll tell you what, I mean, a lot of people know who he is, but at, at, at that age to have that, to be that driven and have the knowledge and the skill that he has, it's just, I'm, I'm just so impressed by that guy. Um, we become buddies and talk regularly, but, uh, yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's just a great hunter. Yeah. It was a fun conversation. You came up actually in the conversation. We talked, we talked some shit, so you better not, uh-huh. you better not listen to that one, but, uh, okay. <laughs> okay. I uh, kid, I kid. Um, but yeah, man, today, what I thought we could do 
is tackle listener questions. We I posted a couple things online and just had I don't know hundreds of questions probably come in, and we can't hit them all, but I'm hoping we can hit as many as possible. I know that we could probably spend two hours discussing just five of these questions if we wanted. There's enough to talk about there. But what do you think about, as much as we can, kind of going rapid fire through them so we can just cover as many different things as possible? Yeah, that sounds perfect. If I get a little long-winded, just shut me down. Yeah, I, I, I'm <laughs> I'm willing to jump in there and tell you to shut the hell up. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but I, I, I think right. there'll be some where we can dive in deeper. Like I think we'll kind of feel it out. But when there's one that we can get through it quick and keep going we'll do it um so i don't know if you're game i think we should uh start the timer and just take off let's do it all right let me get my get my notes here i probably should have sent you some of these questions so you could choose some of the questions so i'm the only one in control sorry uh first question is going to come here from Travis. Travis asks, what are the most important summer scouting tactics for early bow season hunting? Uh, I will give a very quick answer, and I'll let you expand on Andy. I would say when it comes to summer scouting, the things that I care the most about would be inventorying whatever bucks are in the general area through trail cameras, and then number two, getting some glassing and some long range scouting. And that's important midsummer and late summer just to see, okay, what kind of quality bucks are in the area. If you're, if you're just learning a new spot or if you just want to know, did this buck make it through to the next year? But then in that week or few days leading up to opening day, um, that's when you could start glassing to try to actually learn something you could hunt on opening night. If you've got one of those early seasons that open September 1st or something, watching those last few days of August can really help. Um, so that's that's a high-level take on my, on my part. Andy, thoughts? Yeah, I completely agree. Um, the inventory thing is is good. I, I do a fair amount of summer scouting, like, you know, velvet-type stuff, but I don't – I honestly don't get super uh, super serious with it right until, um, you know, that last week, week and a half before the season starts. So if you're in a state that opens early, like let's just say Kentucky, um, where I like to hunt early season, sometimes you're at a major advantage because, um, the deer still in velvet, still bachelored up really well and, um, can be on a very routine, um, pattern that you can capitalize in so if the, the the past few kills i've had in kentucky um early season have been you know observing um either fresh sign one was just fresh sign in a in a um like kind of like a secluded backfield um and then the other one was actually glassing and seeing you know a shooter do something and then setting up and capitalizing that way so the, those that last week or two right before the season starts, that's when I really turn it up because what I, what I see, um, here in Michigan, um, if you got a little bit later opener, like October 1st, um, you could see, you know, these bachelor groups all summer in, in July and August. And then somewhere, usually somewhere around that beginning of September, mid September, they'll start shifting around. And maybe that buck you're after is going to hang in the area, but a, a lot of them, disappear and they just go to, you know, they 
divert over to their fall ranges. So I don't, I try not to get too hung up. I've been, it's happened to me so many times where I've glassed a, a really big buck and I'm so excited and I'm like, I'm going to live on this deer all summer and I'm going to know exactly what he's doing. And just to have him disappear mid September. And I'm just, you know, I had all, all my scouting and all my efforts for that one deer and he's just nowhere to be found. Oh, yeah. I have no, no clue. So it, if you could still, those last, you know, week or two, if you turn it up a notch with the long distance scouting and cameras, that's your best bet if you're if you're shooting for an early season kill. Yeah, and I got to tell you, and I know you've experienced this some um, as well. Those really early season hunts, those like September hunts, are some of my absolute favorite all year. Like I just love that observe from a long range, scout, 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 see, and then make a move off that. I love that style. Like those kinds of hunts. That's that's a lot of fun. That's a lot of yeah, fun. Absolutely. So. That's one of my favorites as well. All right. Next question. Brent, he asks, do you guys organize your Onyx waypoints in any particular fashion to separate hot sign from this year um, versus things from previous years? So he says, for example, maybe this year's waypoints are orange, but last year's are white, anything like that. Do you do any kind of organization with your map waypoints or, or even any other data you keep from year to year? Yeah, I do. Uh, I don't, I don't do exactly what he said, but, um, you know, I definitely don't just use the, the generic waypoint icon. Like I'll do access, um, you know, routes I'll have marked, um, if it's like a water source, I use the, the, the actual symbol, but I'll color code. So usually my accesses are white, um, bedding areas are yellow, uh, water sources. I'll, I'll usually do blue, um, that sort of thing. But, um, I, I never leave um, the title of the waypoint just as like waypoint date and time because I'll f- I have so many across so many states now that I'll forget what they were. Some of them are just ones that I plop down because I think they look good and I want to check them out. And then, you know, a year or two go by and I look at those. I'm like, what, what, yeah. what was it about this spot? <laughs> you know, did I get a piece of advice from somebody or did I observe something? So I, when I, when I make a waypoint, um, I will actually title it what, what I'm, I'm marking it for. So maybe check this out. This looks like a good bedding area, you know, scout this, ask permission here. Um, you know, the big, the big nine, um, traveled through here on this date in the morning. So I'll, I'll organize it in that way. But the color codes that I have have to do more with like the feature, um, that I'm marking. Yeah. But that's, that's, that's essentially what I do. Yeah, that's pretty similar to what I do. I, I've not gone so far as to color code, and I use some icons, but lots of times I just put the generic one in there. But I I do what you do as far as the labeling. I try to get detailed with my label so that I can go back and look at it. And really, as far as I'm concerned, lots of times when I like the value in the waypoints for me is in the long term. So even though it might be fresh sign just this year, that that's helpful to me right now as I'm marking that. But it's also helpful to me next year because I can look back and see all that previous year's sign and how that matches up. And you start seeing, you know, at a high level, you'll start to see these big picture stories. Even if it was old signs sometimes, as you know, many times a new buck will come in and do something similar because it's a terrain feature or something with cover or something to do with typical hunting pressure that will make deer use certain areas. So, you know, that historical data is still helpful. Um, 
if I was better, maybe labeling it in such a way so you could discern fresh versus not fresh, that would be good. But uh, just haven't gone that far. Yeah, I used to. Um, it's been so nice being able to use on X because in the past, um, like I have uh, essentially like binders for each state and they are full of maps. And I used to color code like my marker marks and like pen marks um, and I would, I would mark everything down. So like, you know, when I would see a deer travel, I would mark that, like literally draw it on the map and I put the date and time. So, I mean, it's just, it's just so much data of, you know, like my, my Michigan binder, my Ohio binder, my Kentucky, Maryland, um, Iowa, Illinois, like all of these. And it's just so much data over years. And now, now they have on X and it's like, you can put it all, put it all right on there and make it, you know, so it's all in one spot. But, um, that's what I used to do in that much detail, but I would just do it all by hand. Now, do you still, I know, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I think we talked about some of your journaling that you used to do. Are you still doing journaling hunt, you know, per day by day stuff or has that changed yeah. too? No, I've absolutely, absolutely still do that. I just haven't done the handwriting map markups as much. Gotcha. Um, uh, you know, it's kind of pretty much, almost all mobile now. Um, sometimes I'll still carry like a, a hard paper map. Um, you know, like if I'm going to a new area and, and I, you know, just want something quick or maybe, uh, service might be questionable or I don't have downloadable maps, but for the most part I'm going all on X, but, uh, the, the, the daily logs of hunts. Yeah. I'm, I still do that. And I'm still very detailed with that. I wish I was better every year, every year. I tell myself I'm going to do it <laughs> and I start and I do it here and there. And then it's usually sometime during the rut and I'm tired and shit hits the fan and I lose track. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jordan asks, how big was your first whitetail buck you ever harvested and how did it influence your expectations as you became more experienced? <laughs> it's funny. This question's funny because I took a picture of, uh, I, I have a, a uh, crap ton of deer in my mom's basement, <laughs> Will Ferrell style. <laughs> uh, there's so the, yeah, meatloaf, <laughs> meatloaf. <laughs> yeah. So um, I was over there uh, earlier. It was last week, and I was down there, and I was just kind of looking through them, and you know, going through them. I I don't get to see them that often, and I found my first buck. And it's a little spike. Um, it's got a shape, kind of look like a bull, bull horns, like a, they kind of go up and then they point forward like a little bull. You know, he's probably six inches wide. Um, and I, I put it in the palm of my hand, like my hand spread out. I got pretty big hands, but like, it, it's like, it's smaller than the palm of my hand. <laughs> and I snapped a photo of it and, uh, it was just so funny, but that was my first buck. And, um, it was, it was so cool because, I went hunting with a buddy and, um, I just made, you couldn't make a more perfect shot, um, than what I did on this deer. I mean, it just perfect double lung. He ran 20 yards and died. And I was just in heaven. You know, I was so pumped. Um, but the, I guess how it, I don't know how that influenced me, but it, I, from that very first day, I was always, uh, I always wanted to do like I never wanted to really shoot one that size again. Like I wanted, okay. I was always of that mindset was like, you know, bigger, older, bigger, older. So I kind of followed that, that progression right from the beginning. And like, as you know, like 
there's no family that got me into hunting. So I didn't really go through that, through that phase of like where I shot like, you know, maybe a bunch of year and a half year old bucks. I mean, I shot a couple, maybe like two. Um, and then, you know, then I was started, you know, killing some twos and then I started killing some twos and threes. And then I started killing some threes and four, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it was, it was just, I've always been of that mindset. And I think it's because I did get it into it on my own and, and just, um, I don't know. It was just kind of the, the natural progression, I guess, the way my mind worked. Yeah. Uh, now how this isn't, you know, this is a little off topic, but that progression that a lot of us go through, you, you, you get, a, you get it figured out, you kill a few, then you want to take the next step. You want to take the next step. At some point, did you reach, okay, I've done that enough now I need to like rethink what my goal is. Cause I can't keep exceeding, you know, there's the story of like, I remember Andre DeQuisto talking about how for years he would never kill a buck unless it was an inch bigger than the last one or something. And he kept on trying to do that for, for, I don't know how long. Um, and yeah. then for a long time, he was trying to kill like a world record, typical buck or something he was so obsessed with a single minded goal like that. Um, yeah. and I know he's eventually transitioned off of that to some degree, but I, I'd be curious to, to get his, to hear from him as far as how that mentally affected, you know, his joy of the hunt, if eventually that took something away from it. Um, have you gotten to a point yet where you've had to rethink that? I, I think you have, because I know now that you, you know, you, you're not always killing the biggest buck in the world if it's a certain situation. Um, sure. Explain, yeah. explain how that kind of came about for you. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't know, I don't know what year it was, but like so, somewhere kind of, you know, maybe, you know, nine, 10 years in something like that. I, I got to, I, I, I looked up to guys like, like Andre and, and some of these other guys that were very visible, you know, in magazines or videos and stuff. And it's like, you, you kind of tried to, you know, they, they were very motivating, you know, and, um, there was so much emphasis on like score and stuff like this. And I knew I was from Michigan and I knew, you know, 180 inch deer, you know, aren't going to happen here. Uh, with any regularity. So, but, but I, I, I got to a point where I started putting a, an actual score in my head that I wanted to achieve. And it was very brief. Um, and it was, it, it got to be right around that like 140 to 150 inches. Cause I, I had done it for a few years here in Michigan. Then I was like, okay, that's my minimum. Well, then I, I literally uh, went like two years without as much as seeing or a trail cam picture of anything over 120, and I kind of was like, you know, getting a little disappointed or whatever. And it, and it did. It, it when I started focusing on like score, it it did take a little bit of the enjoyment away um, for me personally. And I've never been a score chaser since. Um, but that was very short lived. But I I did I did get to that at one point where I was like kind of worried about that and because everybody was like so stressing score so much you know and uh then i just realized you know it's just not for me i'm going to focus on just the the best quality bucks that i can find in the area i'm hunting and and that's kind of what i settled in on and of course like you know there's years where i have uh you know maybe there's a maybe there's a buck around that's 150 to 160 you know somewhere in that of course I'm going to concentrate on that deer and, and hunt that deer smart and put some effort into it because it's rare. And, you know, I'm going to, 
I, I'm, I want that challenge, but I don't have, I don't have a, a number in my mind anymore because there's, there's just, uh, you know, last year, you know, um, the buck I shot, he's, he's a, a beautiful 10, but he's not like an incredible high scorer. He's like, you know, mid, mid to low one forties or something. And, um, I'm just guessing I don't even score my deer, but uh, you know, that was the, one of the better ones I could find. And that's one of the ones I hunted. And that's kind of, that's kind of my, that's kind of the way I think about it now. I just don't, I don't worry about score. I worry about, um, maturity uh, to a point, but just the top end bucks in the area I'm hunting. That's kind of what I'm after. And, uh, I don't know, maybe I'd be different if I owned, you know, a sweet farm in Iowa and, you know, you, you have the confidence when you pass a, some of these three or four year old bucks that they're going to make it and you can get them to that age where they can grow some world-class antlers. I probably would look at things different, but that's not my situation. And I don't know that I even want it to be my situation, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I too, I too found that as soon as you go down that road, it quickly leads to disappointment in most situations. So yeah, for me, it's, it's usually I'm trying to have some kind of goal, reasonable goal for an area. That's, that's essentially whatever that top tier is. So usually I try to go age or sometimes experience will infiltrate it, you know? So, you know, all the stories where I'll get hung up on a specific buck and, really stuck on that one, even though I might pass on larger antler bucks or maybe even a buck that's possibly older because I'm so stuck on trying to kill that one. So that's the only time I kind of go off my own little weird wormhole, but that's fun. That's like a cool, different challenge that I've grown to, to have a love hate relationship with, but I keep, uh, I keep getting suckered into it. Um, but my first buck was, uh, a five pointer with like a normal little three point side and then a funky fork that kind of, it was like you had a two pronged fork and then you melted it over a flame. So those forked ends like weirdly twisted, just a funky little guy, um, just a year and a half old. And my only regret with that deer is that for some reason, and I think it was just like a family tradition in that I grew up in kind of an old timey hunting family we hunted up north and we never shot does. So it was like, you only shot bucks. So I got into hunting and I thought I had to shoot a buck. So I passed up on lots of opportunities at does because I really wanted to shoot a buck. But I think that if I had not done that, if I started shooting does at a younger age, I would have gotten a lot of those kinks out of the system, you know, earlier and been more effective at killing some bucks later if I'd done that instead of waiting so long to get that shot. So... So I, I screwed up on some bucks that hopefully that I think I would have got a shot. I missed one. I've knocked an arrow off because I wasn't, you know, wasn't experienced with dealing with those final seconds of an encounter. So that's the one thing I think as far as expectations is if I learned anything, it was when you're just getting started, you got to get some of that in the moment of the kill experience under your belt. Don't do don't be too picky when you're getting started. Don't feel bad, even though Andy May and. Dan Johnson and Andrew DeQuisto are shooting big bucks every year. Don't feel like you need to be doing the same thing if, you know, if you're just figuring it out and if that's not what you're trying to do yet, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And I want to circle back real quick um, to what you talked about. Um, another thing, you know, for me is um, as far as like, you know, going after a, a certain deer or maybe a, a certain situation where I might, you know, shoot a deer that, you know, maybe, maybe a smaller something than some of the bucks I've shot in the past is like the, 
the the actual experience of that situation. So like, you know, I've been in situations where, you know, I saw a buck bedded, you know, like in a CRP field and I was like, man, it would be so epic if I could sneak up on this and shoot him while he's bedded. And it might be a 125 inch buck. You know what I mean? So it's like, uh, sometimes those experiences drive me to make decisions to, to take an animal just because it's a cool hunt or it would be an epic story you know, and, and, uh, just something different or something challenging. There's a lot of times where, you know, I, I would choose to, to take an animal just because of the scenario, I guess. Oh yeah. Oh, I mean, when it comes right down to it, you know, we're doing this to enjoy it. Right. Yeah. So if, if you're having a good time, if you get to see excited, more power to you. Exactly. Yep. All right, Landon's got a question here. He says, do you think bucks get old from being elusive to humans, or do you think they just have a pattern that you haven't quite figured out yet? I believe some of them get old simply due to the fact that they live in a spot that humans don't typically hunt. So I think he's kind of saying, do some bucks make it because they're lucky or they just naturally are in spots that humans don't go, or do they actually pattern us and figure us out um i don't know how do you think about that uh i think it's uh i think uh, both those answers are correct you know in areas that have high um hunter density you know these these deer just become experts at being elusive and moving very little in daylight and uh you know seeking out those spots that are that are really hard to get to maybe not even over overlooked but hard to get to without alerting him they just seek out those spots that are almost bulletproof um and then you know there's there's other times where like you know the i think both i think both of those answers are correct it just depends on on the situation really um you know in in the the type of the type of habitat the type of pressure that that area has, um, I, I, I've seen bucks that have personalities that they move a ton, um, but they just seem to always make the right move and never put themselves in danger. And then there's other bucks that just move at the very last couple minutes of daylight, you know, and you, you literally need to be on top of them to get a crack at them. And, and sometimes it's not even feasible or possible. You have to wait till like the rut when they're out moving more. So I, I think both of those scenarios are correct in every, any given situation. Yeah. Agreed. I think there's a little bit of both, but I do definitely think that in a way we are selecting for the dumber deer or the more active deer. Like if you look at the, the average hunter the, the, or the majority of bucks that get killed are those bucks that were probably predispositioned to be a little bit more active those are the ones that end up getting killed on average at a higher rate than the ones that are predispositioned to be, you know, Scott old timers that just stick in the stick in the stuff and they never like to move around. I mean, the the deer that naturally is lazy or naturally doesn't want to get up and move a whole lot, regardless of hunting pressure, that's the buck that's going to make it to an older age, even if he isn't particularly smart or hasn't learned anything. That's just kind of his evolutionary gift that's helping him make it to an older age so there's some of that but uh but yeah some of these deer do somehow figure it out i don't know if it's you don't want to pin too much human knowledge to them right they're not like thinking oh what's mark gonna do tonight they're not doing that but uh but they certainly know how to survive yeah absolutely
We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now. And if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms I like them because it gives you hand-free calling meaning when you're working a bird up close you can have your gun on your knee finger on the trigger ready to roll and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. Benjamin asks, what's the number one thing that a great hunter does that the average hunter doesn't do? And he defines great hunter as successful most years going after their target buck. But you can define it however you want. Hmm. I would say... Um, you know, making sure, uh, they're scouting, um, scouting enough, uh, making sure you're, you're doing more scouting than hunting. Most great hunters that I know that are, you know, kind of DIY guys like ourselves, you know, hunting, I guess, uh, areas that aren't like managed and, and whatnot, um, they scout more than they hunt. That seems to be a very common quality. Unless unless some guys are just like strictly rut hunters, you can, maybe can get away from that. Um, but so scouting more than you hunt and then also just being prepared. And that, that could be your scouting. That could be, um, you know, your your equipment, your your archery shooting, you know, all that stuff. The, the, the really good hunters, they – don't leave a lot to chance. I think, I mean, there's always some, but they, they do everything in their power to be prepared and ready going into the season so that it will ensure the likelihood of uh, success. Yeah. Yeah. What I was going to say was being detail oriented. I feel like Mm -hmm. almost all of the really successful hunters are very detail oriented. All the little things matter because like you just said, there's, 
there's so many things out of our control when we're trying to kill a deer, especially a mature deer. There's so many variables outside of our control that if you don't take control of everything you can, there's too much left up to fate that's going to keep you from being consistent. So if you want to be consistent, all the little things matter. Tuning your bow just right matters. Making sure you think about every scenario when you're heading into access or exit or you know, the details of your your scent control or what you think the wind's going to do or your scouting or you know what days you're going to hunt, what days you're not going to hunt or what days you take your vacation or I mean every little bit, the squeak of your seat, that might make the difference between a kill and not getting a kill. So those guys that become consistent find a way to, you know, they don't skirt, they don't cut corners. They don't take the easy way. They try to, you know, my, uh, the, the coach at Michigan state, the football coach up until last year, Mark D'Antonio, he always said it was a game of inches. And I always think about that with deer hunting. It's that last inch. Usually those little inches add up to make a big difference. So always, always think about that. And every time I find myself wanting to get lazy on something or every time I'm saying, ah, it'll probably be good enough. I try to catch myself and be like, no, man, this little thing could be everything. So, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I, one thing real quick for me personally, and I, I, there's probably other guys out there. I'm sure that feel this kind of same way, but I can't, I can't accept, uh, failure if it's due to um my own doing like if i make a mistake or if i'm unprepared or if i go into a season and i didn't scout enough and i come out of that season having a you know a a poor season or um you know not having success and, and i can literally put the blame on you know my shooting preparation or my lack of scouting or my lack of commitment or giving up too easily or you know not wanting to get up early um, you know, any one of those things, though failure because of any of those just eat me alive. And I've, I've failed in the past many times for all of those reasons. And, uh, I just won't, I won't do that anymore. I won't tolerate that anymore. So like you said, I try to control and work on everything that I can so that I'm prepared. If I fail because, you know, the deer don't cooperate, the buck I'm after gets killed, he just doesn't come by my stand, another hunter gets him. That, you know, I can take that. That's that's out of my control. I can accept that. I can be, you know, move on to the next deer or the next season with a good attitude. But if it's because of something I did or didn't do, that's the stuff I just, it just eats at me uh, like a cancer. And and I've had it happen before. And now I just I just don't leave any of that to chance. I just... I've said it to you before. I, I feel like I over-prepare. Um, I try to over-prepare if that's even such a thing so that I, I would I would really need to be unlucky in a season for me to not have at least some success. Yeah, and I think that's that really kind of ties together both of those two ideas we talked about. It comes down yeah. to that, that over-preparation and uh, the people that are most consistent, I think – that's that's absolutely a, a uniting factor, and you're you're a perfect example of that. Um, here's a different here's a different one. That's that's kind of interesting. Adam asks, I know enough to know that finding sheds isn't the biggest piece to the puzzle, but it is a piece. If you find the sheds to an incredible buck two years in a row, what are some of the things you would do to help in the fall track that buck down? 
So I guess to rephrase this question a little bit, how do you think sheds factor at all into a hunting strategy? And how would you use that information if it's helpful when you're trying to kill in the next year? Yeah. You want me to take this one? Uh, yeah, you can start. Okay. Um, I, I think it, c- it really depends on uh, a lot of these answers uh, really depend on the type of si- situation, the type of habitat, the type of property that you're talking about. So um, just let's, for instance, around here, let's say like mixed ag country where I'm at here in southern Michigan or northern Ohio, if I find a, a set of sheds two years in a row off a buck and that that tells me that he's in the area, um, you know, maybe even in that specific area towards the end of the season, you know, December, if I'm finding his antlers like in January, you know, there's a, there's a, a safe bet that he was close by toward, you know, the end of the season. So that's, that tells me that, but it doesn't necessarily tell me that's where he was early season or during the rut. So here it's very common for bucks to be in a certain area, you know, early season and then transition slightly to another area, um, for more of like the breeding part of the the season. Um, some, some deer that I've hunted completely disappear you know, like, let's say it's a, it's in an area that's mainly private land. They completely disappear. I have no idea. I don't have access to any of this ground. Um, so, you know, I don't know, even though I might've found his sheds on mine, like I have no idea where he is the rest of the season, but what, at least around here, what I can say is if you're finding sheds, he's probably in the neighborhood. So what I would do, um, you know, maybe it's a, a maybe it's a mile, maybe it's two, two miles, you know, radius or something, but he's, he's probably in that area. So I would utilize finding those sheds that, you know, this is kind of his broad home range. And I would, if it's, if it's public, you're probably pretty good. You got some room to roam and and try to figure things out and and try to locate this deer. If it's private, I would do, you know, some knocking on some doors um, and, and, and trying to, to maybe pinpoint where this deer is early. Um, It just, so then I got another, uh, I got a buddy in Maryland who finds tons of sheds and, and he will literally find sheds in the same little woodlot where he'll shoot that deer the following year. It, it, the deer are pocketed up in uh, real high deer density and they're not a lot of cover due to uh, city sprawl. It's kind of like, you know, suburban type hunting, um, you know, and, and they can live in and around these small woodlots year round. So he'll find sheds off these bucks and shoot them in that same woods sometimes. So he, for him, it's, it's a huge piece of the puzzle on, on even where to hunt that deer where here, if I find them a lot of times I'll find them, uh, in an area where I I won't maybe actually be hunting for that deer. It's probably close by, but it, it might be, you know, a half mile away, or it might be, you know, it could be only 500 yards away. It could be, you know, two miles away. It just, it just depends. So it's, it's a piece of the puzzle. It could be a very big piece of the puzzle in certain situations. It could be a, a smaller piece of the puzzle in others. Yeah. I feel like the most, the most helpful thing it does for me is just confirm life. It confirms that buck made it through the season. Now I know, okay, he's a buck I can focus on next year. 
if I don't find those sheds and if I don't see them, maybe I haven't seen them since November, well, then how much time do I really want to devote to formulating a strategy around him or, or making changes to the property or my setups to kill that buck or, or anything like that? How much time do I want to study past trail camera pictures, study his patterns? Um, if I don't know he's alive, I'm still I'm stuck waiting, stuck wondering, stuck, you know, well, maybe, maybe not. But if I find his sheds, now I know, hey, it's game on. Now, yeah, something could happen in between now and the season. He could get hit by a car, could get killed by disease. But you've got a pretty good chance he's going to make it. Now you know, okay, he's alive. Now I'm going to really focus on him. So that means, okay, in the off season when I'm not doing something, if it's if it's June 1 and 95 degrees outside, I'm not going to do something out on the property, but I want to get something done. Well, if I know that he's there still, I'm going to study past trail cameras and start finding when's those couple windows of time when he moved during daylight last year or the year before. Um, all that kind of stuff you can attack with so much more focus now that you know he's there. Um, the second thing I'd say is you can get a little bit that might be helpful during hunting season if you find those sheds in something like a bedding area you know if you find that and you can actually see oh wow this is a buck bed and i know that this buck was bedded right here and you know it was in the late season in the winter this is where he bedded that's a really important helpful clue to get if you're going to hunt him in the late season again so if if you get to december of the next year and you're still hunting him well now you can know okay well during the winter with this kind of food source this was a place he felt safe and that can be a helpful piece of the puzzle you now know one of the hubs of the wheel and plan accordingly with that knowledge now that you can you know last times you can make assumptions all right i think he's betting around here i think he's better around here but if you know i know he betted right here at least once in january or february or something that's pretty good i mean that can tell you something um Sit in that bed, just like if you found a bed while out scouting. If you know that that exact buck was laying there, sit in there, think about it, figure out why he did it. If you're really lucky, if it was a fresh drop, you might even be able to see his tracks coming in and out of it. Backtrack him. See how he walked to that spot. Um, you, you know, In a lot of cases, you won't be able to have that information. But if you get lucky and happen upon it when there's still snow on the ground and you can see those big tracks, you know, take advantage of that kind of thing if you get that Um Last year or this year, I guess, I found the match set off the buck I'm after this year, that, that buck Tran that I really want to get a shot at. Now, I don't think I get anything from that. Is Other than just knowing he made it, I'm not learning anything very helpful because it was in the middle of a cornfield right by the road. So he was, at there, he was out there in the middle of the night, dropped him. Um, all I know is that he was still in the general area in the late season, which, which I knew because of sightings too. So... I think Adam's right in that he said they are a piece of the puzzle, but they're not the biggest piece. Just uh, take everything you can, though, right? Every little detail could help flesh out that bigger picture. Yeah, I kind of tackled that uh, question under the assumption he had just found the sheds and didn't have any sightings or history with it. Like, if you obviously, like in your situation with Tran, you had so much data of sightings and, and trail cameras, um, you know, so you, you kind of know. Uh, a tentative game plan how to hunt that deer and for you it was just like you said confirmation of life but if you just find a set of sheds and you know you've been hunting this general area the last two years but you found these sheds you haven't seen this deer you haven't got any trail cam pictures of this deer you're probably not hunting the right area but he's probably in the neighborhood so that's what that's what prompted me to say 
you know, check, venture out, you know, check, uh, you know, a different woodlot, check this swamp over here, check this marsh, you know, expand your search, um, knock on some doors, use all the public land, run cameras, glass, you know, really try to, uh, to hone in. And if it's a, if it's a substantial deer, like around here, a lot of times, um, there, there might just be one big mature buck. So if I find big mature buck sign, there's been uh, many situations where like i it's almost certain that this is the deer that I'm after. You know, this is almost certainly him because all the rest of the deer are immature. So, you know, just think about that. If you do find a a set, you don't have any history with the deer, haven't seen him actually hunting or scouting or anything like that. He's probably not far off. He's probably in the neighborhood, but you you need to go out and do your work to find him. Yeah. Have you, have you killed one that you found his sheds before? Oh yeah. Yeah. Yep. How often a thing is that for you? Um, not, not super often. Um, because I honestly, I don't find a lot of sheds here in Michigan. Um, yeah, I don't have tough, tough find them around here. Yeah. And, and I don't really have any, you know, ground that I hunt that has like good late season food sources really. Um, uh, you know, maybe, maybe a couple, a couple pieces that, you know, have some, some draw and some, some late season. I've found a couple sheds, um, and a buddy has killed, um, but, uh, yeah, there's, there's a, there's a few, um, that I have, but not, not a, not a lot here in Michigan. I just don't, you know, if I find, I think this year I found seven or eight, um, you know, and that was, I went out, I I put on the miles, you know, I went out at least a dozen different times for anywhere from four to five hours each time. And that, that's pretty average, you know, with that amount of effort I've had the most I've ever found was 12. I've had plenty of years where I found like four, you know, so yeah, that's, that sounds about, about right. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. I think my best, well, this year is my best Michigan year ever. And I found 11. Oh, that's good. But, but, Oh, I mean, it's it's not that good compared to a lot of guys or girls, but uh, for Michigan, right. it's not bad. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, exactly. I found the I found the match set from the number one buck I'm after, so that's huge. And then I found a left side off of another mature buck that uh, I'll be after maybe. And then I also found the left side of another buck that could be a shooter on the back 40 maybe i mean he'd be like a three-year-old i think at the best but that might be the best we've got out there so uh so as far as you know finding sheds off bucks i might hunt this was not a bad year yeah what i find what i find down here just because it is you know vast majority is 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 private land very little public land if you're if you're hunting in this area there's a lot of very small parcels and if you're lucky enough to get permission on you know any of these you're, you're hunting a very very small window of you know w- where this deer's life is yeah and that's why i kind of go back to you know finding those micro patterns and, and seeing those that historical data of when you can hunt this very small tiny area for a, a particular deer and only hunt it during that time and the chances of finding a shed there and killing him there, you know, in, in most of these cases, uh, these small areas with really, really high pressure is just, it's, it's just a hard thing to pull off down here unless you got a big private farm or, or something like this, or a nice big 
chunk of public land, which yeah. there's just not a lot of it around here. Yeah. So let's keep on with this kind of theme, a little bit of trying to figure out, you know, what these pieces of the puzzle are for a buck you're after. Uh, we got a question here from a guy named Joe, and he says, if you're monitoring an area with trail cameras, how close is too close to a buck's core area, or let's say his bedding area, or some of those potential bedding areas? Um, how tight in there are you willing to get with your cameras when you're trying to figure out those pieces of the puzzle and, and zero it in? Um, uh, I use so most of the time I put my cameras that are in areas that are fairly easy accessible, meaning I don't have to go through like bedding cover or anything that where I'm going to spook deer. I, I, I kind of, put a lot of effort and thought into if it's something that I'm going to be checking throughout the season, I won't, I won't get too close. Um, all I really need to know if it's an area, if it's an area that I know, well, all I need to know is that he's in the area. The, the, the rest of the knowledge has, has been laid down from previous scouting knowing the, the lay of the land and the habitat and where the travel routes are, where the likely bedding is, where the water is, where the food is, that that's what you figure out when you get those boots on the ground and the map scouting and all that. For me personally, the trail cam picture is just like, okay, he's here now. You know, this is where he was, you know, uh, on this day. And now if, if, if I feel like he's in this area consistently or, or now's the time, then I'll go dive in and, and hunt him. The other situation is I will put in I will put trail cameras in sensitive spots, but I'll leave them there almost the entire season. You know what I mean? It's more, it's more for Intel for future seasons, future hunts. Um, you know, just a, an area where I don't want to go in and, and bust deer out, but I'm going to get some good information. That's, that's, I, I think that's probably the, the way I mostly use trail cameras. I know some guys put them at their stand locations. I do that occasionally, not, not real often, but occasionally like, and I'll check it as I go in and hunt. But for me, most of the time, I'm not hunting certain stands repetitively. It's it's very rare that I hunt a stand more than two or three times, if that, you know. So that's that's kind of the way I, I look at it. Um, I, I think people utilize them in different ways, though. Yeah, I, I, would, I would echo a lot of that. I, too, prefer to be pretty conservative with my trail cameras. Mostly, I'm trying to pick easy access spots that just confirm... You know, is he in the area? How close to daylight is he moving in this area that's easily accessible? And if he's in there in daylight or just on the edge of daylight, that means he is moving in daylight a little farther back in these spots that you might want to hunt. So, so it can still be helpful. But uh, so I, I wouldn't go too tight into like a core bedding area with my cameras unless the thing you just said, which is something that I've done a little in the past, you know, stick a camera back in a bedding area or back in a sensitive area and then leave it over the season. But this year, I want to do a lot more of that. I want to make a point this year to dedicate a big chunk of my, maybe not a big chunk, but a substantial enough chunk of my cameras to just collecting a bunch of information that's not going to help me this year, but it's going to help in the future. Because um, there's a number of those spots that every year I hunt them and I'm like, oh man, this is great back here. But I never get any pictures because I never want to go in there and throw a camera. Um, but I hunt it once a year, twice a year or something. There's so much more going on that I could be learning if I had my second set of eyes there. So this year I'm going to make a point in August probably when I get my final scouting prep work in, I'll stick a couple cameras in these tough to reach spots with 
great set of uh, lithium batteries and a big camera or big SD card and just let it run till January because I do think that's really helpful stuff, especially like we talked about. Many times these bucks do somewhat similar things year after year, or even if that buck is killed, other bucks will come in and use an area in the same way because there's there's something there that, that makes it conducive to, to a deer doing something. Yeah, right on. Um, how do you, speaking of, how do you organize all your trail camera gear? This is from Project Hunt HQ. Do you do, do you have any good organization system for your cameras or, or pictures? Um, like organizing my, my pictures, like on my computer. Let's do both. Let's actually your trail cameras and trail camera related gear, actually the physical thing. And then also the pictures themselves. Uh, okay. Well, the pictures themselves, um, yeah, I put them all into folders, usually labeled by the area I'm hunting, like, you know, so-and-so state game area or blah, blah, blah farm or, you know, whatever. Um, and then I'll, I'll label, um, within that folder, I'll have another folder of the camera location in that area. And then I'll also, I usually do, it's usually seems to be broken down, um, it, it, it kind of depends, but like if it's one that I'm saying, maybe I'm checking, you know, more frequently, it might say, you know, so-and-so drainage early October, and then there'll be a next folder, so-and-so drain, the same drainage, you know, uh, mid to late October, and then so-and-so drainage early, early November. So I kind of break it down, like almost like into like two week periods, um, just so I, there, it, at least so they're somewhat organized by time and location. Um, so I'll do that. Um, and then I'll also, if, if I start zeroing in on a particular deer and like I'm after a deer and he makes it. So now that history is starting to build, then I'll have a folder of just information on that deer. And that, that's going to include all his pictures. So now I can go in and really start mapping out what this deer is doing. I'll go back and I'll cross-reference like uh, historical weather data. And I start looking at the wind. I start looking at the temperatures and all this stuff to see if I can come up with something. And usually uh, I can, I could start to come up with some sort of pattern that will at least give me, you know, a bead on him, a when and where I need to, to kill this deer. Um, so that's why I'll really dive in if it's a, if it's a deer I'm getting history with. Um, but then if it's just a, a particular area, those same types of patterns can materialize as well. Like you'll see, you know, maybe, maybe, if, maybe if you have it in a, like a funnel or, um, like on a scrape or something like that, you'll, you'll start to see when the activity really starts to pick up, you know, and then maybe there's this short window of, in early November or late October or whenever it is where a boom, all of a sudden you get this five day window of mature buck sightings. It's maybe not an actual individual buck you're after, but maybe there's, maybe there's two or three in there that you'd be happy to shoot. You know? So I start, I, I start to look at those patterns as well. And it's, it, 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 when you, when you do that over a lot of years, over a lot of areas, it starts to really kind of lay out a lot of options moving forward from year to year. So not that my whole hunting season is planned out and I know where I'm going to hunt October 31st. I'm not saying that, but it's, it's kind of a, it's almost like a tentative layout and things change, you know, in the season cause you're doing in season scouting and other deer show up or this deer gets killed and you got to change or 
pressure creeps in and, and changes everything. But, you know, that's why in-season scouting and being able to move in immediately is important as well. But that's kind of how I organize my pictures. As far as my trail camera gear, I, I guess I don't really understand the question. I mean, uh, I, I guess I, I will I will answer it myself and then see if that spurs anything for you as far as that. I simply have two places that I keep my cameras. I've got like a plastic tote and then I've got actually a bag that was created for trail camera stuff. Moultrie makes it. It's kind of like a, a sling over your shoulder kind of bag that's got padded compartments where you can put cameras and then there's some side pockets where you can put in batteries or whatever. And then there's actually a really nice little um, SD card sleeve or booklet almost where you can put, I don't know, 20 SD cards in there. So I put cameras and all my equipment in that. And then this plastic tote, I will put whatever other cameras I have, plus extra batteries, plus extra SD cards, plus um, I usually have got a knife in there if I have to cut something as I'm you know, putting up a camera or something like that or popping out batteries out of the trail camera card or trail camera. Um, also, any accessories for mounting. Like I'll have lots of those stick and pick um, mounts sometimes to get you know, on a tree in a certain way, off extra straps and buckles. I try to have all that in this box. And so I will have either both of them with me. Like if I'm in my like a ATV or in my truck or something, I can have that stuff with me. I'll take the tote with everything. If I'm walking to a spot or if I'm heading out, I don't know, for some reason I can't take the big thing on a ATV or something, I'll throw that one over my shoulder and it's just nice to have like everything you need because something that's happened to me a lot and it always pisses me off is that I'll I'll go out thinking I'm just pulling a card and so I'll be in a hurry and I run out there and I get to the spot and then I realize you open it up and the camera's dead and I wasn't prepared and I didn't bring batteries or I didn't bring an extra SD card or something I, I hate it's happened to me too many times over the years when I got lazy or stupid so now I'm trying to, this is a situation, trying to be overprepared when I go check those cameras. Because every time you go in there, you are putting scent on the ground. You are possibly pressuring deer. So I want to be able to minimize those entries as much as possible. I don't want any in and out, in and out stuff. I want to go in once, knock it out exactly what I need and get out of there as quietly and as carefully as possible. So having a nice little like go bag ready has helped me out with that the last uh, year or two. So that's my gear. As far as pictures for me, pretty similar to you. Um, I have a folder for every property and then for the, each property, then I break it down by year. So then I have another folder for every single year. Um, and then I just save pictures of bucks two or older. Um, and I'll, I'll get, I'll, ke- I'll keep every two year old buck or older picture in that folder. Um, and then I have it organized chronologically. And then sometimes if I get a specific buck I'm after, like you said, I will make a subfolder just for that deer. But I'll keep I'll keep his pictures in the full year one as well because I still want to go back and sometimes, like you just said, go back and scroll through the whole year. And then you'll start to see, you know, like those little windows. Oh, man, look at this. In 2017, from the 25th to the 29th, all these bucks were moving in daylight for some reason. Um, that's interesting. But then I'll also want to zero it in on that specific buck, and I can do that with uh, with that. I also sometimes will go and use Deer Lab. So again, if I'm going after a specific buck, I'll upload pictures of that buck to that website where you can analyze specific patterns and you can start tying things together. But I, for whatever reason, I, I find that helpful and I do it, but I somehow 
end up going back to my little custom spreadsheet maybe more often. So I also have online spreadsheets for these specific bucks I'm after too, where I will log every daylight sighting and every daylight trail camera appearance. And I log. So every time there's a daylight sighting of some kind, I log it along with all the weather, all the different factors, where he was, what direction, where he's going, what the wind was doing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Again, trying to, you know, unearth some kind of pattern. So, so that's what yeah. I've got. Yeah. I'm saying pretty much same. I, yeah. And as far as like just storing my cameras, they're all, they're just all on a tote, well, scent free tote. And they, they go in there to all the batteries come out, they go in there until they're ready to go back out. Yeah. That's about it. Yeah. All right. Rapid fire continuing. We got a question from Scott. Uh, top books that have influenced your success in the field. You got any books, Andy, that have helped you? Yeah. Um, certainly uh, when I started out, um, the Everhart books were uh, were influential. Um, mainly, like, um, you know, I, I, I hunt a maybe a little bit different than John in, in some ways and in some ways not so different, but, um, they were really influential in the fact that I could see how much detail and dedication and time and how important scouting was to be consistent, to be consistent on mature deer in, in a state like Michigan. So it was a, it was almost like a kind of a blueprint of, you know, the the way the way he hunted and the effort he put in so that that was a a good one um let's see what else uh you know some some of these some of these are are really good for what i would say maybe maybe like be, beginner hunters or, or maybe people that are just getting past like the beginning phase and they're trying to venture out and get some new experiences and some new terrain new habitat but um i really like that mapping trophy whitetails it's 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 very basic yeah but it's uh it, it is it's very good in terms of the features of hill country how deer use some of them um you know if, if you're kind of if you're an experienced hill country you don't need that book um but it's uh it's a it's a very good book for someone that's maybe just getting past that beginner phase and, and going to tackle some hill country, I would definitely recommend that. Um, then I, there's actually some, uh, some, they're, they're more geared towards out West, like mule deer, uh, type stuff that, that I've really liked. And I know that's not what we're talking about here. So, but, um, probably those two stand out. Um, I really liked more for entertainment purposes, the Benoit books. Um, you know, I always, I have those on the bookshelf. Those are great. Um, how to bag the biggest buck of your life and then big bucks, the Benoit way. Um, those are all, those are all real good. Um, I really like the, the out West bucks, uh, or the, the muley hunting with Dwight shoe. I've really enjoyed those. Mm. He's, he's a hunter that I kind of, kind of a legendary mule deer hunter in the mountains that I kind of look up to. Um, so I, I really like that. If, if there's a guy that's, uh, looking to get into some Western stuff, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Those are, those are all good ones. I would echo a couple that you said, um, definitely Eberhart ones, um, precision bow hunting, which was the second one they did. I think Yeah. that yeah, is my, a little better. that's my favorite. 
And that's the one that was the first one I read of theirs. And that was I've said this many times before. So long time listeners know this, but that was like my light bulb moment. I read that book and then everything started clicking. Um, so that one for sure. And then my next favorite one of theirs is actually the most unique one of their four, which is Whitetail Access which is the one that Chris Eberhardt wrote, which isn't just a how-to. It was actually the story of one season where he traveled across the country hunting all these different places. And then he he tells the story of all those hunts and that those trips. And then throughout those stories, he also kind of describes his thought process. He shows maps and diagrams, the how-to of everything he's doing. And that's that's one of my absolute favorites where you it's actually – it's a fun read. You kind of get to go on the hunting season with him, but then you also learn something. Um if I ever write a deer hunting book, just a deer hunting book, I'd want it to be something like that because um, that was just a fun read, but but interesting. Have you read that one? Um, no, but I have, I've had it in my hands, and I've kind of you know browsed through it and read a couple stories, and it, I really like the layout of that. That's one I'll have to – I have to sit down and read. Yeah, you should you should read. You can borrow my copy someday. It's, it's a good one. Um, and then I will – so the Eberhardt one's for sure. I really like the Mapping Trophy Box one you mentioned, and then I will say for the – one thing I do different than you, eh, you do a little bit helping out with your buddies, but I do a little bit of habitat work, whether it be on the back 40 or the one other local property I have. And so as far as like habitat management stuff, um, probably my favorite books on that topic are uh, Jeff Sturgis's. I really like his analytical, very strategic way of approaching different ways to improve a property in a way that helps you from hunting perspective. So Whitetail Habitat by Design it was his first one. That's probably my favorite. Um, that'd be one I'd suggest if you're going to try that kind of thing. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. How about... Oh, this is tough to choose from these, but... um, Alright. Punisher... Is this guy's name or handle? Here's a question. I have... Oh, let me... Okay, yeah. I have a farm area that I hunt that has a high doe population. I tried to hunt an exit trail that I watched a buck use during a certain wind. But when I moved in between the bedding and the field edge, the does in the field were catching my scent and blowing out like crazy. The bedding is close to the field edge, and this buck exits next to a shallow ditch in the field. How do you locate a stand when surrounded by so many does and also set up next to something like a ditch that might impact thermals or something like that? He's kind of asking. So I think that to make it a little more generic, how do you go out trying to set up in a scenario where you've got tons of does that are going out to feed out into like your open safe space during the first part of the afternoon? 
or sorry, in the latter part of the afternoon, but then you've got bedding close to that. So you, you, your wind can't blow into the timber because that's where the box bedded, but you don't want to blow it in the field because the last hour of daylight, all the does are going to be there. There's going to be 20, 30 does that go out there and then they're going to wind you and then the buck never comes out. This is a scenario I found myself in a lot on one of the properties I hunt. Um, how do you, how do you try to do that? That this, this weird wind cutting corner stuff, it's one of those big challenges for a lot of guys. Yeah. Yeah. That's a tough situation when you have a really, uh, abnormally high amount of, of does, um, like your ratio is, is out of whack. It, it makes it really tricky. There's so many eyes and, and noses that you got to beat, you know, before the buck. Um, so I guess in that situation, like I, I almost would never, um, hunt that type of situation with my wind blowing right out in the field, especially if I knew deer were going to be entering the field. I would try to get like maybe some sort of crosswind um, type scenario and enter, you know, in from the side. Um, it, it reminds me a lot of some of the areas I, I hunt in um, a couple areas specifically in northern Ohio. And, you know, entering entering through the field and going into the woods, um, you know, with the with the wind kind of in your face blowing back out in the field, it's it's a kind of a recipe for failure. Um, it's you, what I found is I, I'm much more effective if I can come in from the side, like kind of a, and hunt like a, a side wind and then hunt, uh, perpendicular to the travel, um, and, and the wind also, you know, per kind of perpendicular. Um, so like, uh, like you got, you got a, how do I explain this? It's kind of hard without being able to like show a map or something, but you, if the, if the wind is just blowing like straight out into the field, um, and you're kind of off to the side, you know, you can, you can get away with it a little bit, but a lot of times I'll, I'll cheat the wind a little bit. Um, well, it's a tough, this is a tough question. I'm kind of fumbling over my words here. Cause I keep thinking of all these different scenarios. Yeah, There's all these caveats. Is he saying the wind has to be blown out into the field? I don't know. Or if can you hunt it from a different wind? Let's say you can, let's say you can hunt it from a different wind or, or whatever scenario you want to paint. Yeah. Okay. So uh, like I, if, if that was happening, if the wind, if you're hunting it and the wind's blowing out in the field and you're getting caught, like that's not a scenario I would set up for anymore. I'd use more of an, like an off wind or a, or a, a perpendicular wind, like blowing to the side, I guess. Um, you know, and try to, try to hunt that movement coming in perpendicular instead of like in line with it. Meaning, you know, if deer are coming out and coming by me, um, and then they end up behind me and that's right where my wind is blowing. That's, that's not going to work, but you can hunt kind of to the side of that travel with the wind in your face and you could be perfect, perfectly fine. Um, so it's, it's, it's a matter of just finding that, that perfect position, um, you know, where you can be, where you can get away with that, I guess. One thing I will say in areas that have really high deer density, um, from my experience, uh, a lot of times, like, you know, there's a, a big emphasis on, you know, getting close to buck beds and stuff, but I've hunted some really high deer density stuff to the east, um, the east part of the country. And that's a, a really difficult um, setup is getting close to where the bucks are bedded because there's so many deer. So what I found is the, the better approach is to hunt way, way back because there's so, such high competition that you know, this group of deer, the younger deer and does get up first, then the younger bucks. And then those big bucks will get up and move, assuming all the other deer have, you know, traveled undisturbed. So I, I've actually had really good success at older deer 
hunting hunting back, like where I would never hunt in Michigan, closer to the food source or way away from the bedding. You know, on a, on a I'm talking on like a bed to feed pattern, but but backing off and letting all those deer come, and and hopefully, you know, you got your wind and your setup right, and then you're just patient and waiting for all the deer to come or come through. That's kind of how I got killed my buck last year. Yeah, that Maryland there. one. Yeah, yeah. But um, as far as uh, I don't, I don't know. I hope I hope that's clear. It's a it's kind of a a, a tricky question because I wasn't sure where he was going with that with the wind, but I I wouldn't hunt like in line where my wind is blowing out into the field. If, if deer were going to end up in the field, you got to think of it in terms of, you got to stay undetected for that buck to, you know, if he's going to come out, you got to stay undetected. Or if, if it's a situation where you can't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hunt it. I'd only hunt the wind where I could do that. Yeah. And it might, it might mean if there's no tree, it might mean you're, you're crawling or you're hunched over and you're sneaking in and you're hunting from the ground or you're hunting from a, a you know, inside of a, a, behind some, some cover or something, whatever you got to do to get in the spot where you can utilize that wind and stay undetected. Now, as far as he, he said, the, the deer was entering from a ditch, I'm assuming low, he's entering the field at the low spot. That can be tricky. You, what you want to do in those situations is do not hunt it on a calm evening. You need a, you need an evening where there's a, a stiff enough breeze that it's going to override those thermals. Like I've been burned so many times where, you know, it says there's going to be, you know, 10 to eight mile per hour winds. And I set up in a situation like that. And then it just, the last 20 minutes, it goes down to nothing. And then everything pools down in that area. And then I hear a deer snort and, you know, the game is over. So you really got to pick and choose. Don't just go, you know, hunt that setup willy nilly on any night. Really look at the forecast, see what the wind's doing, make sure it's consistent, make sure it's blowing into an area that's unlikely to have deer get downwind of you so that that's i guess that's how i'd tackle that question i could i could go more ways with it but you know i, I was a little confused at first but I, I think that kind of touches on it yeah i would just i would like the simple way i would look at it is that you either you you got to give up something either you give her either give up nothing and by that i mean you you just choose not to hunt it because you can't hunt that spot without spooking too many deer and if you're spooking all those does you're spooking the buck so maybe that's a spot you just can't hunt um or number two you have to give up something and so you just use whatever intel and past history you have to determine where the lowest risk spot is and then as you described hunting off wind that rather than blowing straight out into the field instead comes parallel to the field blowing crossways and then yeah. get as far down as you can so that you know you've got you know uh 270 degrees or something like that of safe space and just that small wedge down to the other side of the field that is you know at risk and hopefully that's going to be the spot that is least likely to have to have deer coming out there but but I, I have this exact scenario that plays out on one of the properties i hunt and it's a spot that i've seen bucks that i want to take a crack at come out when i'm not there and so i always try to give it a shot you know once a year or something depending on what's going on and it is really hard to pull off um i've had to blow my wind cross and into the woods a little bit, but knowing that that's the one least likely corner that they usually don't come out. So as I've gotten to figure out the spot better, I, I know the winds, I can hunt more safely now on it, but it is a little bit of a risky proposition when you have so many deer. But, you know, if you're spooking, if you're spooking those does, 
it's it's just as bad as spooking the buck sometimes when there's that many deer because you get that cascade effect where right. you spook that first group of tendos that comes out and they push everything back when they run in into the woods and then your buck's never going to come out. So, yeah, it's yeah. a tricky one. It is. That's a good question. It's 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 really it's kind of that situation is it can be really high risk, high reward. Like if I'm going to move in and it's a it's a touchy situation like that, I want to be I want to be sure, like if, if I saw that buck do that a few times or I have some intel that he had done that, you know, I would absolutely move in and, and give that a shot. But just do like what you said and try to keep that wind blowing into the least likely spot where a deer will get downwind. And there's usually you can usually do that. You know, um, it's just sometimes you got to get creative. There might not be a tree there. Yeah. Or I like what you said, too. It just might not be the spot. It might not be the spot to kill him. Yeah. Which is a tough thing to come to terms with. Like yeah, it, that's absolutely. really hard. It's really hard to give up on a spot if it if it looks good, or if you know if you've gotten pictures of a buck there, or if you've seen a buck there. It's really hard to to take that off the off the table as an option. But again, if you keep on educating them every time you go there, you're never going to get the shot, even though you see them every time you're not hunting there. Um, sometimes you get no one to pull the plug. Yeah. Uh, okay. Seth asks and this is a situation i don't know if i can really answer this one because i don't know if i've hunted this scenario i gotta think about it a little more but i don't think i've hunted yeah i've hunted something kind of like this but i know you for sure have um seth asks what are some tips you have for scouting or hunting a 60 acre woods or let's just say a small chunk of timber that's surrounded by ag on all four sides he hunts in ohio so this is a situation I know a lot of guys deal with up in northwestern Ohio where there's tons of ag and there's these small woodlots, like a little square woodlot, 10 acres or 40 acres, and then it's ag all the way around it. Um, what are some tips for scouting, hunting, something like that? He says that he gets deer and camera all summer, but then their patterns change in the fall and they disappear. Um, what's your take on those isolated woodlots surrounded by ag? Yeah, I, I get the same experience um you know i'll I'll scout out a bachelor group of bucks all summer um and at least i'm assuming you know if it, he, he might hunt a, a fairly similar area to where i hunt in ohio where the the farming communities they're just really aggressive and they'll a lot of times get the, the food out really fast sometimes like right as season opens and it just changes everything you know and those those woodlots in the area where it's a lot of little woodlots you know, my and his and, and every other hunter, their first instinct is to go and hunt those woodlots. And the the mature deer figure that out really quick. And uh, I have killed uh, outside of the rut all of my mature deer in that part of Ohio um, outside of those woodlots on the ground. Um, I've killed a couple from a tree, but they were more like kind of late October rut type thing funnels. But, um, if you, if that, if you look outside of those woodlots, think of those woodlots as they, they get a lot of traffic from humans, other hunters, et cetera, unless you're in an area that has really low bow pressure for some reason, then they could be good. Um, 60 acres is pretty big. That's a lot bigger than anything I have up around here, but, um, the, the ditches and the drainages in the hedgerows that connect all these woodlots, the little island of trees, the cornfield edges, the clump of trees that's on the edge of the cornfield, 
um, that by bi- you know that the bisects like a corn and bean field, like where the edge meets, and there's a clump of trees there. These are the spots where I find the big bucks lay, and um, that's where that's where I've been able to to scout these deer and get on these deer and kill them from the ground. Um, that's not to say this woodlot couldn't be good if there's you know maybe some oaks in there and, and there's nobody hunting it and it gets relatively low pressure but it sounds like he's seeing them in the summer and then there's just kind of nowhere to be found um up around here is is a fairly low deer density and once that food starts coming out early season and it comes out early like the first few days of the bow season and it starts coming out really quick the deer a lot of the deer travel and they they almost do like almost like a little migration and gravitate towards those big chunks of private property that have just that supreme cover or these like little metro parks, like little parks where there's no hunting that are within like five miles. All of a sudden, you know, some of these deer are, are literally traveling. They're very nomadic in that type of situation. And they'll, they'll, they'll go to these, these properties that have, uh, have much better cover or lighter pressure um, and they'll, they'll travel, um, and, and totally relocate. But if it's a, if it's a situation like last year, it was really wet. And a lot of those crops and everything stood, uh, stayed standing into November, early November, then you could still be in for a, a good hunt, especially if there's like corn and, and beans and good food, like around those woodlots. Um, so last year I, I saw a lot of the deer hung around, you know, these hedgerows and these ditches and stuff, but if he's having trouble finding them in that particular woodlot and maybe that, that woodlot's kind of like mature timber, there's not maybe not a real good food source or anything in there or, or just good thick, uh, bedding, you know, bedding cover, look outside of that, look at the, the little, uh, the little features, the little drainages, the little ditches, the little creeks, um, and, and focus on those and really walk those. That's where these deer will hide and they will, they will bed in those or behind the old abandoned farmhouse. Um, you know, in actually in the standing corn, you know, where you see like a little Island of trees or a soil where the, the farmer couldn't plant. These are the spots that these, these bigger mature bucks are hiding. And like I said, outside of the rut, every deer I've shot down there has been from the ground. That's pretty interesting. And, and yeah. I haven't hunted that kind of country where it's so much ag land and just those small woodlots like that. But I know a guy I talked to a few years ago that hunted something just like that. Same kind of area of Ohio that we're talking. And he did something very similar to you in that he only hunted fields and he only hunted ditches. And he was using trad gear, hunting on the ground, hunting ditches, just hunting along little creeks or whatever that run through or swales that run through standing cornfields. And he killed some really nice bucks like that. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Because the challenge, I think, as you alluded to with a lot of those relatively small woodlots, is either A, the corn comes out and then there's these little tiny islands of cover. And it's really hard to penetrate into there at all without spooking deer out the other side. And so either they're too open to hold deer or you spook everything when you go in there or... You know, it's just so wide open that they never come out. So, so yes, I really like your idea of, of attacking it from a different angle. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, here's one that's kind of, um, kind of similar. Uh, JB asks, what terrain feature or piece of deer sign has brought you the most consistent sightings or opportunities? And is this different for different times of the year? 
Um, and when I hear this, the first thing I jump to, if I had to pick something, would be I'm probably going to go with doe bedding areas because from late October through November, it's it's something that's universal. You can find that anywhere you go, whether we're hunting in Nebraska or we're hunting in Montana or Maryland or Michigan or Ohio, there's going to be doe bedding areas somewhere. Like that's a great starting point. If you're hunting a new place and you're trying to figure it out, and if you're hunting anywhere within that pre-rut to rut to post-rut kind of time period, there's going to be bucks that relate to doe bedding areas. Like that's just a, it's going to happen no matter where you are. So it's a really good thing to to look at as a starting point. There, at least that's, that's it's like a hub. I know like buck beds are a hub, but doe bedding areas are a hub too because where those does are for most of the day is where the bucks want to be. Um, and you can figure those out relatively easily, probably more easily than you can in some cases find bucks because, you know, those does typically are bedded in spots that are a little bit easier to get to. You don't need to go as far into nasty stuff and possibly spook stuff. So that's that's a piece of intel you can pick up with a little less impact and know that bucks will be relating to it in some way. You know, coming into it from a downwind side, scent checking it, trying to get in and around there at some point. So if I think back on a lot of my hunts, anything that's within that rut larger window almost always in some ways related to a doe bedding area. So I think that would be my, my first, my first crack at that one. Yeah. I, I think that's a great answer. Um, that, that, uh, if a guy did nothing else, you know, and only hunted the rut and hunted just doe bedding areas, that's a great strategy. You know what I mean? I, that's, I love doe bedding areas specifically, you know, kind of like getting in there in the interior of the downwind side, favoring the downwind side a little bit. Yep. Um, and then, you know, those, those, those situations where you got two, maybe two dynamite doe bedding areas that, that are connected, uh, with some sort of funnel, like on a river bottom ground or, you know, a Creek bottom or, or maybe a, just a pinch where the woods narrows down. Um, another great one. Um, I mean, those, those edges, those downwind edges and those funnels, I mean, they probably, Almost, almost every kill you could relate is somehow to some sort of edge or funnel, you know, that kind of pinches down movement, um, or, or encourages that type of movement. Um, there's no real, there's no real, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say a, a buck bed because buck beds are all different. You know, I mean, you got the ones in the swamps and you got the ones, you know, in the corn and in the marshes and everything. So I really like your answer as far as the best of the best. Uh, that's, that's gonna That's going to give you good action for nearly four weeks of the season. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, let me see here. Here's one that's more directed at you, but I might be able to give it, give something to it. Tim says that, uh, in a different podcast that you did with, uh, Jesse Coots, you mentioned that you had sought out Jesse's advice to work on a weakness of yours, which you had said to be hunting in the early season, possibly. Uh, so that was in the past. What weakness would you say you want to improve on now? If there is anything else that you're working on next? Um, I still feel like, uh, I mean, I, I've, I, a couple of years ago, um, when I really kind of looked back over my hunting seasons and all the deer I've killed, 
you know, there certainly have been, you know, quite a few killed during the rut, certainly quite a few in kind of that mid October time frame, and certainly quite a few in the early season, you know, and then there was like this, this kind of gap, you know, later in the season, um, you know, from maybe, well, I mean, really it was kind of like from mid November through the end of season, there was just, I, I had, I have killed some, but it was like a handful, you know, over, you know, 20 some years. It just wasn't, it just wasn't a time of the season where I was very effective. And, and a lot of that has to do with just not having, um, you know, areas that are, are conducive to good late season hunting. And, you know, a lot of it comes down to having good food available in that. And I, I realize that. So what I, what I tried doing the last few years was to start traveling um, during that time of year to some other states that maybe have uh, a little bit higher deer density, um, maybe a little bit lower pressure, maybe a little bit higher selection of older deer. And um, I've started to, the last few years, I've killed some some really good, like mature, like truly mature, like five, six-year-old deer that I believe um, in the late season. So I've, I've used that. I've kind of left Michigan because it's just one of those, I don't know, it's just one of those time frames I really struggle with here, but I think it has more to do with like the quality of the areas that I hunt and, uh, and lack thereof of food. So I, yeah. I started traveling to those areas where it's just a little bit more target rich environment and you can, you can, uh, kind of go and, and implement some of those strategies that you hear, <laughs> you know, some of the guys that live in some of these other States that maybe are traditional big buck States or less pressure. And you hear these strategies about post rut or late season. Well, I've been able to go to some of these other States and actually put those practices to use and have some success. Yeah. So that that's probably still my weakness and, and something I'm still trying to get to better at and more experience with it. Honestly, I just needed more experience with that. Um, like I said, in Michigan, a lot of times you're limited to, to these really smaller areas. And, um, I mean, if the deer aren't there, they're not there. You're not going to, there's nothing you can do to kill a big mature buck there if they're not there. Yeah. So, so I, I went to areas where there's more of those and I can, you know, track them down, basically hunt them down. Oh yeah. Well, so much of this stuff is location dependent when it comes right down to what you just said. I mean, you can't kill them if they're not there. And it is nice when you go to these different states, these different areas, it's, it's very different than we deal with here in Michigan, as we Mm -hmm. both know. And, uh, it's pretty fun when you find yourself in that kind of scenario. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, I think one of the windows that I want to work on as you started talking about times of year, Mm -hmm. um, I found that I, I really like the very, very beginning of the season. Early season, I really feel strongly about how I approach it. I, f- I feel like I've got a good thing nailed down, and I, you know, if I've got some spots, I can get a crack of something. Um, and then again, when it comes into pre-rut and the rut, I've got it. When it comes to late season, it's very spot dependent, like you just said. But I've always got at least one place that I know is going to be pretty decent late season because I've got, you know, some control over it. So I've been able to find some local success on one of my late season spots. But for me, my w- window of weakness has probably always been um, like mid-October 
You know, I usually mm-hmm. I usually hit it hard the first few days of the season. And then once you get into that second week or even like the fourth day of October on until like the 20s of October, I have either, I'd say two things. I said, number one, for a lot of years, I just was too risk averse at that time of year. And I was just worried, you know, the the October lull thing kept me from hitting stuff hard for a lot for a lot of years. And so I just stayed out for a long time. And then I've tried to, as I've, as I've kind of gotten more and more comfortable in seeing more and more examples of the fact that, hey, yeah, there's, there's a shift there, but there's certainly still deer to be killed for sure. Um, I've started hunting more at that time of year, but I still probably have been tiptoeing. And a lot of that is because the spots that I end up hunting in many cases are the spots that I'm also still wanting to try to hunt in the rut. And so I'm, I'm not willing to blow it out. So I, and I've, a couple of years I've said, I'm going to do this and then stuff gets crazy or work or life or whatever. And I don't end up doing it, but I want to dedicate more time from October 4th through October 20th. I really want to get time and experience killing bucks from the October 4th to the 20th within that window, because I know it can be done. I know it can be risky. So I just need to find spots where I'm okay swinging and missing a few times metaphorically um, and not screw up my rut plans. So that means traveling different places or that means hunting some public stuff that I'm not as worried about. Um, But that's a window where I'd like to get more aggressive and, and be more risk tolerant because I know, I know people are doing it. I know I can do it. I just need to be willing to get in there and do it. So that's, that's one of my areas I want to work on. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a, that's that time of year that could be tricky. And when uh, really zeroing in, you know, on those, those, those buck beds that you have scouted and, and found in the past, that's a great time to start bouncing around on those. And now, and I totally understand like, you know, in your situation, it's not something maybe you want to do like on some of your, your, your uh, home turf, I guess, um, you know, cause you don't want to screw up maybe what could be the best time of year. Yeah. But um, if you do, you know, for guys listening, you know, you know, take a page out of uh, like Dan Infault's book where, you know, he has scouted so many of these buck beds, you know, over years and years. Now he's got this big library of buck beds and he can systematically hunt those on the, you know, at the times of the year like this, when uh, that you're talking about when the bucks aren't moving far, but they're in there, they're bedded somewhere. And, you know, with some, with some scouting and reading some fresh sign and, and maybe using a little trail cameras, you can zero in, on where these deer are likely bedded and then it's just a matter of getting in into that window where you can encounter them in daylight and uh that time of year that's just i'm really kind of i'm I'm doing a lot of in-season scouting but I'm, I'm hunting a lot of those those buck beds that i've scouted that maybe i don't always know if it's a a mature buck um bedded there or maybe i don't know for sure that you know he's bedded there but i'll i'll give it a sit because it it was a really well-used buck bed. Um, and, and in other scenarios, it might be where, hey, I'm, I'm still getting pictures of this deer. I know he's in the area. He's likely bedded here. And I, the conditions are right. A little drop in temperature. The wind's perfect. I'm going in to, to hunt this particular bed. So that's kind of like how a lot of my 
punts in that that kind of small window you're talking about end up panning out yeah so this is something kind of related to that one a little bit uh it's from a guy named joe and if i can paraphrase his question here basically describes a situation where he's got a, a somewhat small property where if he leaves it alone he usually is going to have some pretty good action during the rut but he has a new property owner one property away so a new neighbor who's come in and is now like a super serious deer hunter where previously nobody hunted it. Now there's a new deer hunter there and he's planting food plots and putting in all this food and doing all this stuff. And now he's worried that there's going to be, you know, this new competition, one property away that, you know, could pull this deer away where typically he knew that he would be, the buck would probably still be there by October 25th or November and he could hunt him. Now there's this new competition, all this new food, um, how would you approach it, Andy? Would you would you get more aggressive early, or would you still, you know, play it safe and play on the rut? I don't know. It's a tough one. Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, you'd you'd let your, I guess you'd let your, your scouting, which could be your, uh, you know, observation sits, your trail cameras, and and all that dictate what you're actually going to do. You know, if you're gonna, I I, w- I would never make that decision ahead of time it would it would be a game time decision based on the information that i had in front of me and i would try to seek that out through observation sits trail cameras glassing whatever whatever would be most conducive to that terrain that he's in i don't know um but that's something that happens all the time there's always factors that are changing and if you want to stay consistent in an area that has higher pressure you have to you have to constantly be evolving and adapting to that change. I mean, there's spots that, you know, there's spots that I've hunted um, in the past that were good that are just so crappy now I don't even bother. You know, you ca- you you, you got to be constantly working at scouting new ground, accessing new ground, finding new areas so that when stuff like this does happen, your whole season isn't in shambles. You can just fall back on plan B or C or D. Um, you know, it, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. But if you're getting locked, if you don't own the ground, if this isn't your own personal farm and you get locked into one piece, man, I, I, I would feel so handcuffed by that because I don't have any single piece that can produce a, a, the kind of deer I'm after every year. I have to go out and search many different areas to find one or two. And, you know, if I didn't have those spots and constantly be looking for new ones. Like I wouldn't have nearly the success that I do. Yeah. So that's what I, that's what I would recommend. I would, you know, look for some real time information when season start picks up. Um, if the buck's there and you know where he's at going after him, if, uh, if he's not, or he's not moving much in daylight, you don't know where he's bedded and you think that you need to wait, you know, maybe towards that later part of October, then wait, you got to, you got to do your scouting and make the best decision with the information you have in front of you. Yeah. Would you ever swing for the fences earlier than usual though? If you, if you felt like, Hey, I know that, I mean, it, it kind of is similar to like the situation. Like when we're approaching opening day of gun season, when November 15th is breathing down your neck, you know mm-hmm. that, okay, a few days from now, shit's going to hit the fan I'm going to swing for the fences because I got to get ahead of that competition. Well, let's, let's, you know, so in this scenario where, you know, there's going to be like a bunch of guys or more guys hunting now than usual, 
even if your most recent sign or even if everything that you would typically do doesn't tell you to go for it quite that hard, if you know that, hey, the weekend's going to arrive and I know these three guys are going to be hitting it hard, will you push the limits a little bit because of that or still you're going to stick to your guns? Yeah, I mean, if it, if it's high competition like that, yeah, I I swing for the fences. I'll go for the aggressive sit and and go for it early. It, it, again, it's situation dependent. You know, is it are the guys hunting weekend guys and they always hunt by the field edge up front? You know, then maybe it's not something you need to worry about if the you know the buck you're after is you know towards the back in the swamp. So again, you got to analyze all that and make the the correct decision. But there's some spots that I hunt like some a lot of the private pieces, almost all of them, um, are shared by, by many other hunters and I will swing for the fences right from the get go on a lot of these pieces. Um, you know, I'll go, I'll dive into that best, that best spot, that best bedding area for an early season kill. If, if there's, let's say there's, I'm, I'm, I don't have a bead on a, a different one. Um, I will definitely do that because it, it only takes two or three days for these guys to screw up the whole thing for the rest of the season. Yeah. So I've, definitely done that in the past but you you just have to for me personally i have um a lot of areas to 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 go back on so i'm i'm just constantly analyzing what okay what's what's the best move for this situation and it sounds like for that guy in particular like maybe that's like his only piece and i would work on i would work on you know finding some good public and, and knocking on some doors and getting some backup just in case, you know, that happens and, you know, his fears come true and, and his season kind of goes down the crapper, Yeah, you know? Well, that's one of those things that you do better than almost anybody I know, which is just always having a backup to your backup to your backup to your backup. And that's just not easy to do. I know that that takes a lot of time, a lot of, work to get all these different spots by permission or scouted out on public and to keep access. And, uh, that's tough. Like I know from personal experience, I've lost a lot of spots. I don't enjoy knocking on doors. I, I hate dealing with that side of things. And so I'm constantly lacking. I constantly end up settling for too few places. And every year I tell myself I need to do better. And some years I do better. Some years I do worse. Some years I've got circumstances that just don't allow it. But, um, but you consistently do a good job of that. And, and if, if, if ever I had to point to like some of the things that differentiate your success from a lot of people, that's definitely one of those. Um, you don't ever let, and it, go, it goes back to what we started with. It goes back to being overprepared. You're not going to mm-hmm. let fate or bad luck deter you from success. Maybe one of your properties gets blown up and on another property, someone kills the buck here after and the other property, they take off the crops and chisel plow everything up and that one's crap, but you've got a plan D and a plan E. And, uh, I think that's an approach a lot of guys could benefit from. Yeah. That stuff happens every year in Michigan, like every single year, uh, you know, spots get blown up by other hunters. The buck I'm after gets killed. You know, this one gets poached. This one disappears. You know, and you know if it's a spot I have permission on, this guy gets permission, or I lose permission. Every year something happens, so you have to stay ahead of the game. You have to stay ahead of it so that you know when things do like that, things like that happen, it just doesn't wreck your season. It's just like okay, you know, I'm gonna fall back on all these other backup plans, and then you know in the off season I'm gonna get back to work and scout some new some new areas. And the cycle continues on and on, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> 
All right, man. Well, uh, I feel like I feel like I've kept you here for a long time. We've got a bunch more we still haven't answered, but I think we got to pull the plug. I have to pull the plug, actually. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to try to do some more of these, Andy, because this is this is fun. And I think we're covering some good stuff. So. Yeah, those are those are good questions, and a few of them are kind of challenging to think about. So I had a good time. Yeah, me too. Well, uh, I appreciate you taking time to do it, man. And um, let's get together, shoot our bows, and scout some velvet bucks here soon, huh? Yeah, let's do it. All right. All right, that's going to do it for us today. Hope you enjoyed this one. Thank you for listening. If you have more questions, be sure to post those over on social media, whether that's the Wired Hunt Facebook page or Instagram account. I try to do these Q&A podcasts once every month or two, and we'll try to tackle some of your questions again coming up here soon. So be sure to do that. Good luck with all your summer hunting prep. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand... One of my main turkey hunting buddies. He loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. But I just have Yanni use his. Then I'll have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today.